This is a Sunday message from New Community Church in London. To discover more about New Community, visit newcom.church. Right, um, so we're going to start this afternoon um, with a moment of public confession and possibly some repentance. I'd like a show of hands in the room. Do we have any Man United fans? Tuh, tuh, tuh. Well, there'll be prayer ministry at the end for that. Um, so, I have a question for you, Rich, and actually for any other football fans in the room. Greatest player ever to play for United? I, I will take hands in the room. Bobby Robson, okay. Maybe. Look at that. Lorne wins a prize. <laughs> yes. So, according to Pele and according to Lorne, um, George Best. Phenomenal dribbler of the ball, incredible pace, incredible skill. Um, sort of, so he dragged United to their first European Cup victory in the late 60s. And just an sort of absolute rock star of his generation. Now, Best's God-given talents um, made him extraordinarily wealthy. Um, here's how he spent that all, all that money in his own um, unfortunate words. He thought it was funny, pretty tragic. Um, so, and after a life of wild partying, gambling, promiscuity, alcohol abuse, naturally, it ended pretty badly. Now, why is this relevant? Because if you open a Bible now with me, at Luke, to Luke 15, you'll find Jesus telling a story about somebody very similar. Um, it's a story about God's attitude to people who find themselves at rock bottom and how he responds to people who come to their senses. And we'll come back to George Best later because there's a twist in the tale. Anyway, let's pray. Lord Jesus, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. Oh Lord, my rock and my redeemer, you are the God who rejoices over us with singing like um, Gordon was reminding us. You're the God who celebrates. Help us as we speak and as we listen to be shaped by the Holy Spirit. Come, Lord Jesus, we pray. So we're going to start at verse 11. Luke 15, verse 11. Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want you to give me my share of your estate now before you die. Mm. So imagine doing this as a teenager. You go home to a parent or guardian and you say, I can't wait for you to die. Um, ask them to sell their TV, sell their jewelry, sell their car and their house if they own one, sell all their valuables and give you your cut immediately. The reaction would probably be interesting, to say the least. But his father divided, his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. A few days later, the younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land. I wish you were dead was hurtful, let's be honest. You don't need to be a Jewish parent 2,000 years ago to find that offensive. That's offensive. It gets worse, though, when you think about the context. So the father's wealth, like all wealthy people in his time, was tied up in land, right? And the younger son sells his share. We wouldn't care. Property transaction. This, this father would have done. So it's effectively robbery because the father is entitled to use that land that he's gifted on for the length of the rest of his life. Um, 
but far worse. Um, to sell your family ancestral land is basically to say, well, I've never been part of that family anyway. It doesn't mean anything to me. Not my family. I don't care. Cheerio. I'll have the cash. Thank you very much. Um, matter of huge public shame. Not cool. Then, as quickly as possible, he's gone. Right out of there to Vegas or whatever the equivalent is in his day. Um, and he's got the father's money. He doesn't need to be around the father. Cheerio. Gone. Why stay a moment longer? However, and there he wasted all his money in wild living. About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land, and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and the man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. He spent all the money, all the money. And then a natural disaster makes it even worse. Something no fault of his own. No friends, no money, no food. And that's not rock bottom. Rock bottom is wishing you were an animal so that you could eat the animal's food. And as a Jew, a pig's food. That is, that is rock bottom. Um, really offensive. Then... When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, at home, even the hired servants have enough food to spare. And here I am, dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and ye, and I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. So he returned home to his father. So the younger son faces his own mortality. He's going to die. And he realizes something's got to give, something's got to change. And the starvation motivates him to go home. He knows the disgrace he's going to be viewed in when he goes back to his village. So he plans to ask his father's help to get him one more chance. And when you look at the original, apparently, what this essentially means is he's asking his father to help apprentice him to one of the local craftsmen so that he can learn a trade and pay off the debt. The original hearers would have seen right through this. There's no suggestion of repentance. This is a ploy to get a job. That is it. So he begins trudging home. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. Older man. He sees his son a long way off. Even though he has no idea when or even if the son will come back. I don't know what his prescription was, but that's quite remarkable. Um, he sees, because he's been diligently searching for the, the son, and the father runs, and it's a disgraceful thing in his context for a mature Jewish man to run, but he doesn't care. He's willing to suffer humiliation in order to be reconciled with his son. And he hasn't asked any questions. There is no explanation of what happened. Um, he's still filthy from, if you've ever been in a pig house or near one, he is filthy and smelly from feeding pigs. The father embraces him anyway. Embraces him tenderly, offering peace and reconciliation and love before it's asked for. His son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. But his father said to the servants, quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet and kill the calf we have been fattening. 
We must celebrate with a feast, for this son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. So the party began. So he doesn't get to finish the prepared script. He had no hope of ever paying back the debt on his own. Um, and actually, paying back the debt wouldn't have fixed the most important thing, a broken relationship. And in the face of the father's offer of radical forgiveness, knowing that living life by his own rules had gone terribly, disastrously wrong, he's no longer lost. He gives in. He's no longer lost. He's found by the father searching for him. And on the edge of the village, the servants bring the father's own robe to dress him for the son to wear as he walks through the town. His disgrace is covered. Um, He's given a signet ring. I just wouldn't have done this. Here, you can sign legal documents on my behalf. Here, have my signet ring. Um, He's trusted again, straight away. And in a society where most meals didn't have meat, they kill the fatted calf. calf. Celebration. Straight away, not after the son has proved that he's, you know, turned over a new leaf. Nothing. But this unearned forgiveness is costly. The money's long gone, and blood has to be shed. But the father pays the price, not the son. Meanwhile, the older son was in the fields working. When he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house. And he asked one of the servants what was going on. Your brother is back, he was told, and your father has killed the fatted calf. We are celebrating because of his safe return. The older brother was angry and wouldn't go in. His father came out and begged him. Now it's the elder brother's turn to publicly disgrace his father. He remains outside the house, outside the party, and his father's basically humiliatingly forced to go out and beg him to come into his own house, to his father's own party, repeatedly in front of everyone in the village who's come. This is a bit like using, you know, a a best man speech at a wedding or something like that to trash talk your entire family, you know, air the family dirty laundry, all of that good stuff in front of all the most important people, all the most important friends. Not a good move. Certainly not a good move on what's supposed to be a very happy day. Here's his rant. All these years, I have slaved for you and never once refused to do a single thing you told me to. And in all that time, you never gave me even one young goat for a feast with my friends. Yet, when this son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fatted calf. Kind of tells you everything you need to know. Everything you need to know about his attitude to his father. The way he speaks in a culture where you've got huge respect, huge respect for older people. Um, It would have been outrageous. Um, He sees working for his father as slavery. He's self-centered, he's obeying his, he's openly obeying his father just to get his money. And when things don't go well, and just to be clear, they haven't gone well for the elder son. He has paid for, um, he will pay out of his inheritance for the readmission of the, of the younger son. But when things don't go his way, he's livid. He's absolutely furious. He's rather his bro- brother had stayed dead and disowned. And he's not recognizing that Everything he has, everything, including the goats, by the way, is um, his because his father gave him them. 
And, he and instead, he accuses his father of favoritism and for, of being tight-fisted. You never give me a goat. But... His father said to him, Look, dear son, you have always stayed by me, and everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate this happy day, for your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, but now he is found. His father might have disowned him on the spot, if we're honest. There's an, but there's an incredible tenderness to how he speaks to him. He doesn't minimize, he doesn't endorse what the, what the son's done. He, he was lost, he was dead. But the story closes with the father challenging his self-righteous son. Swallow your pride. Accept the father's costly offer of love, of relationship towards you as well. And join the celebration. So we've gone through the passage um, and we've talked a little bit about what it might have been like and what it meant um, in the context in which it was spoken. But now we're going to have a look at how we might apply that to us today. And as we've read through, um, hopefully you've picked up, maybe you haven't, that the Father represents God and his attitude towards us. He is looking earnestly for his children to come home and he lavishly celebrates their return. We're going to look at his two sons, though, um, each in turn, and both of them represent a different way to be alienated from the Father, God, and a different way to try and seek his acceptance. First, we're going to look at the younger son. In the name of freedom, he makes a rude gesture at his upbringing and to his family and his hometown and goes off to find himself, throwing everything or anyone who wants to tell him how to live his life away. And some of you laughed, and I think it's probably because you two can see that trait today um, in the world around you, in things like, follow your heart, you do you, or live your truth. Fear of missing out, often exacerbated by social media, and also called FOMO, um, drives us to fill this one short life that we have with all of the many different options for thrilling experiences. And you can never have enough. You can't have enough money, enough sex, enough friends, enough work success, enough influence, enough possessions. You can't have the perfect family, not enough. Um, and you can't have the best travel Instagram on the, in the world. It's not gonna satisfy you. You can't have enough of whatever it is to find that satisfaction. And None of these things are actually the be-all and end-all of life that advertising and social media try to fill us into thinking that they are. And as Christians, we're not immune from this. Too often, I recognize in myself some of the younger son's traits. I mean, in more subtle ways. So I haven't cut off the father and run away to Vegas, but I mean, I'm here today in Sidcup. Hello. Um, but sometimes I do find myself being swept along by the world and the people around me, thinking that I can live my way, that I don't have to bring God into my decisions. I can make them on my own. And too often I choose my comfort and the things I want to do over his kingdom and his will. And I think that I can live like my non-Christian friends and colleagues. And I'm more like the younger son than I'd care to admit. But Jesus tells us in this story that God's like a good father 
He's seeking those who have run from him, those who ran away a long time ago and never had a relationship with him, but also those who did have a relationship and then ran away more recently. This is a God who calls us home. He can satisfy us now. And if we come to him, he will satisfy us in his house in heaven forever. He's a God whose approval we don't have to earn and whose costly sacrifice in the cost bears the cost of all of the wrong things that we have done. He's a God who knows us and a God that we can know. We're going to look at the older son then. So he was really angry when things didn't go his way with his father. For him, a life of serving the father felt like slavery. And he represented, in the original audience, the Pharisees that were there, gathered around Jesus, listening as he taught. And these religious leaders obeyed a complex set of rules that they'd built up on top of the Bible in a mistaken belief that somehow that would earn them favor with God. But their heart wasn't necessarily in it. There are older brothers in our world and in the church today although they aren't quite as obvious maybe as the Pharisees were in Jesus' day with their fancy hats and long flowing robes. Um, but they're here. They are here in the church um, and some ways that we can perhaps spot them or recognize ourselves in them. Our older brothers sometimes lack joy. Often they do good things, but largely out of duty, not out of love or desire. Sometimes they are quick to condemn others' faults while seemingly being unable to see their own. When things don't go well, older brothers complain, probably not out loud, that God owes them. They've ticked all the boxes, done all the things, and they haven't got what they wanted. Or maybe they're beating themselves up because they didn't do well enough. Their actions weren't good enough to get them blessing. And in hard times, they're not crying out to God for help, but they're bitter towards him and others. Outside the church, there are elder brothers too. And often they're good people. They live responsibly, but they don't think they need God or the church. They're fine without all of that. And their good works or public plaudits prove that they are worthy of looking up to and of doing well by society's standards. The difficulty for older sons, Christian or not, is that that's a really brutal, unrewarding life. Moral duty, without a deep sense of relationship with God, is a huge burden. You can never do enough. You have all of the injustices in the world to fight, all of the environmental problems to solve, all of your personal flaws to battle, and so many people who need to be helped. And you have to do it all in your own strength. Sin isn't just breaking rules. The younger son, that was kind of evident what he was doing was wrong. But it's also putting yourself in place of God as savior, Lord, judge, or something else like the elder son. And God pleads with us to give up our wrong attitudes and motives. He calls us into loving relationship, the loving relationship we should have with him as his children, to stop striving and trust that Jesus' work on the cross was enough. And as Christians, he wants us to know that everything we do, we do with him. We don't do it alone. We don't do it in our own strength. We do it in his. And 
He sent, and Gordon mentioned it, he sent the Holy Spirit to help us. We're not doing it on our own. We've got the Spirit who comes alongside as our helper. And one day, he, not us, will make all wrongs right. One day, he will wipe every tear from their eye. And one day, all things will be made new. Finally, different though they are, they do have some common characteristics, these sons. One in particular, they want the father's wealth and all of the blessings that that comes with, but they don't want a relationship with their father. And in the same way, much of our society, they don't want God, but what they do want is relationship that means more than just biology. They want people to have worth. It wants meaning and purpose. Everyone wants meaning and purpose in their life. And also, I hope that one day justice will be done and the climate crisis will be solved. And these are Christian beliefs. They are. Um, But they're things that secular atheism can't back up. It wants the kingdom um, without the king, just like the sons in Jesus' story. We've come to the point where we've come to the point where you've kind of decide what you've got to decide what you do with all of this. Um, so, despite the hurt, bye. Uh, despite the hurt and the pain they caused their father, there's an invitation for both sons to live in his house, and it's the same for you too. And let's talk about three different categories of people. If you've never accepted Jesus, he wants to welcome you, to satisfy you, rejoicing over you, whatever your past looked like. There's a second group of people who've been living for a very long time, just coming along on a Sunday, pursuing your own pleasure, your own ambitions in the week. And God wants to receive you back as family. And then finally, if you've been living in dead religion, Christian or secular, striving and joyless with no hope of ever fixing the things or the people around you he pleads with you come in know him let him love you you can come in and live life life to the full inside your father's house now and for all eternity starting today so final sort of postscript george best took his god-given talents and lived a lavish flagrant you saw the quote outrageous lifestyle. And yet, in November 2005, a nurse called Joyce in a private hospital in South Kensington on the other side of London prayed with him, read the Bible with him, shared her faith with him. Eventually, three weeks before he died, he came to his senses. He was faced with the hopelessness of his own situation. After a life-chasing pleasure, which can never satisfy, like Catherine was saying. And this younger son encountered the father's generous, costly, radical forgiveness, and he repented. George Best thought he knew how to party and celebrate. He does now. Lord, oh Lord, you know the things I nearly left out of this talk because they cut so close to me. You know my elder son tendencies far better than I do. And yeah, I... I repent of them. I pray that 
whichever son we are like, or both of them in many cases. I pray that you would, you would meet with people in this room. That they would repent and come to know you. Know what it's like for you to celebrate. Celebrate over them with singing. Know what it's like to experience deep relationship with you. We worship you, Lord Jesus. We bless you. We praise you. Lord Jesus, amen. Thank you.